Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. We've had a bit of a hiatus, in part because we were killing ourselves to get the Blister Winter Buyer's Guide out, and in part because it seemed like the world was about to end. The Cubs actually won the World Series. Then, just a few days later, I was at Soldier Field in Chicago to witness Ireland defeat the New Zealand All Blacks for the first time ever in history. And they've been playing since 1905. And then, you might have heard something about the fact that there was a little election here in America, and now a former world wrestling entertainment personality is going to run the country. You stay crazy, 2016. Anyway, we're back, and it's currently snowing outside, so we wanted to share this conversation I had a while back with the lead designers at Armada Skis. I stopped by Armada's headquarters in Park City, Utah, and sat down with Andy Hitgen and Logan Imwak to talk about Armada's past, present, and future, Armada's stacked team and how they work with Andy and Logan, how Logan landed a design job in the industry, and we talk about some specific skis in the Armada line, like the history of the JJ, the evolution of the Idolo, the Invictus 108, and the new ARV 106. You'll hear us note repeatedly that Tanner Hall seemed to be keeping an eye on us as we recorded this conversation, but Tanner proved to be elusive, and we didn't get him on tape. Right after, however, Tanner reappeared, and we did end up talking for several hours, so we'll have to see about getting him on the podcast another time. Turns out, Tanner has more than a few strong opinions on a very broad range of topics. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by High Brew Coffee. Without exaggeration, High Brew Coffee played a critical role in helping us finish our winter buyer's guide. I'm not going to lie, it got pretty dark in the final weeks of working on the guide. I was working about 20 hours a day and sleeping about 90 minutes a night. I do not recommend this, and next year we will make sure it doesn't happen again. But this year I was leaning very hard on High Brew. If you need further proof of this, check out the photo posted on the show notes to this podcast of my massive tower of consumed High Brew coffee cans. High Brew puts expertly crafted cold brewed coffee in a can to enjoy whenever and wherever you want it. And High Brew coffee uses only the finest 100% fair trade Arabica beans. There is no sugar crash because none of the High Brew coffees are loaded up with a ton of sugar. Go find out for yourself. Go to highbrewcoffee.com to learn more about their products and check out their store finder to see where you can get yours. Now let's get to our conversation with Andy and Logan at Armada Skis. We are here today actually at uh, Armada headquarters. I think if you Google it, it actually <laughs> says something like... I, I don't know who calls it Armada HQ, but it does pop up that way on everything. Yeah. I don't know who, Armada did, HQ. who did that. I don't, I don't know. The Googlers. Is it good? I don't know. It's just Armada. Um, but uh, yeah, we're here today with, with Logan... Did we say Imlock? Imlack? Imlock. You got it right first try. I just like I like to give you options in case you pronounce it right. Andy knows better than anybody. Because for a while, hear my options. (laughs) What what are my options today? Yeah. Uh, So Logan Imlock, who uh, some of you probably have uh, seen a little bit on the internet, if you haven't had the chance to to meet Logan in person, 
Uh, and then uh, we have an esteemed uh, repeat blister yes. podcast. Sure. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we established a like one time a, a co-winner of the favorite person we talked to at SIA. <laughs> co-winner. Good. He's wearing the he's wearing the the medallion oh, yeah. uh, today that we gave him. I'm just making that up, but uh, yeah, no. So Andy's Andy's actually kind of one of our favorites. Um, he's he's a really fun person to talk skis about, and he um, he's fairly smart. So uh, but we call him Smart Andy. Do you? That's, smart that's Andy? Smart I didn't bring that. No, that it came just from K2. It right? transferred over somehow. Okay. It's very fitting. Yeah, Smart Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think in the the Ski Designer Roundtable podcast, I was making bad jokes about like how your last name should be pronounced like Sufjan Stevens yeah. or something, but I think we've just settled that we're going to say Andy Hit, Hit John. Hit John. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what that works. That's how most I think my family would say. But smart Andy is smart Andy's easy also. Smart yeah. Andy's it just name. makes you, it's just hard when you're around other Andys. It's the only time I don't like to, or, you know, I don't <laughs> that that is awkward for me. It's um, very sweet of you, you know. Yeah, but looking out. and since I sit next to another one, like it's just oh. always a little strange. Thing, but um. but we've we've changed it to to smart Andy. What wait? What are we calling Andy Miller now? Is, your chocolate is he vanilla Andy? That could be chocolate Andy. Also, don't know why another name. chocolate and vanilla. So, anyways, <laughs> last names can get you in trouble for your whole life if they're not easy to pronounce. But they're talking points. What um, what ethnicity is uh, Norwegian? Oh, yeah, Hitian. I think that's why it was Hitian Stevens. Is see, I was right, yeah, and you right. tried to act Hitian. like I wasn't right. No. I wasn't nervous. There was a big group. Okay, it was a big group. <laughs> All right. Well, good. I feel validated. Um, so you two, uh, you know, for better or for worse, uh, these are these are the guys I'm talking to. Are uh, when you're looking at those Armada skis on the wall. Well, I guess depending on what model year you're looking at, but going forward, uh, the skis from Armada that you're looking at, uh, these two guys um, are responsible for those. Um, so happy to be here today um, in Park City, uh, talking with these guys about um, skis, backgrounds, the market, um, all kinds of good issues. Um, so in no particular order, is this your first sort of ski design gig? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So but, previously I was uh, a design engineer, but civil engineering. Um, I did that for a while. Then I did some project management stuff in the oil field. And then... Um, there goes Tanner Hall. Tanner Hall just walked in the building. <laughs> He's got we, some, we'll some get Jimmy Johns or something. We'll get him in here later. We should get him in here, yeah. But, um, yes. So I guess kind of the... You know, I, I had been building skis in my garage after I got dropped by a, a ski sponsor. And then... You know, with my CAD rack arm and all that, it was really, really easy for me to jump in and start designing skis. And then I actually had an interview with these guys and with K2 in the same week um, to come in as an entry-level design engineer. Mm-hmm. And then ended up coming out here. My first experience with Logan was seeing his, his resume across the desk a bunch of times yeah. uh, back at Line. Line's brand manager was always advocating for Logan. Like, get Logan in, in here. Like, get him. I bug Malchek once a week. For at least oh, wow. seven months. 
huh. um, just pounding them. And then I end up talking to Jed, Jed, who's uh, now the engineering manager at K2, um, shooting spreadsheets back and forth for yeah. analyzing ski flex and all this other stuff. Hmm. So, you know, prior, I mean, it's, it was about over a year of correspondence with ski engineers and companies before finally even getting an interview. Huh. Stay on that grind. <laughs> keep, keep knocking on the That's door, right? I'll fucking annoy people if I need to. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to be. But you don't often find like a guy who's, you, you find guys that like to draw skis on CAD or you'll find people that like to ski, but rarely have they the background in skiing plus the background in engineering. And then they've also been building skis and doing trial and error and still staying with it fully, you know, self-funded. Like yeah. I think those are all kind of rare yeah. occurrences and not that they would make, of course, the best thing ever right away just because they fall in line, but like there's huge potential. Like yeah. it's, it's definitely a great fit. Yeah. And you, you grew up in Anchorage? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was your ski spot there? Alieska. Yeah. Yeah. And then branching into, you know, me and my friends made movies out there. So we'd snow machine and, and go, well, even back then, <laughs> I didn't actually get a pair of skins and touring bindings until I was like 20. Last year. Six. <laughs> we were just, uh, yeah. Maybe two years ago. Yeah. Because all my friends snowboarded, and this was kind of before splitboards, yeah. and they all snowshoed. So I would put my ski boots into snowshoes and snowshoe with them wherever we were going. Solidarity. <laughs> <Boot pack everywhere. laughs> nice. And, uh, but yeah, we got turning and pass and hatcher pass and like fucking around about these a little bit. So yeah, all over Alaska, it was kind of hard. Do you like, happen to know our reviewer, Andrew Forward? No. Huh. Because he's, he's, I don't, are you, you're 27? 29. 29. Mm-hmm. He's maybe a couple years younger than you, yeah. but. Born and raised up there? Or? Yeah, and doing it all. Like, Ooh. takes the 10 out for 30 days, mm-hmm. and is, we'll see you in a month, and he's just <laughs> cool. solo lapping, turning in, and yeah, he's getting after it pretty hard out there. I have some friends that probably know him, but I, I haven't lived in Alaska in mm-hmm. five years or so, so. Hmm. You're also a bigger guy than I thought. From really? like the super, I always like I always well, assume you're I, like a little midget. I, I think the same all. thing when I meet people. It's so crazy how size differs. Like meeting even meeting Tanner, you know, I he ended up being a little bit taller than I thought he would be. Like it's, it's so funny how that works. I just maybe I just assume anyone that can do cool stuff on rails. I just I just assume they have to be garden gnome size, yeah, right. and that's the reason why. Like you know, I could never do that, but it turns out that's not that's not <laughs> true. Will Wesson's like six two. Yeah, he's huge. Yeah. Like he's, he towers over me. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, but yeah, that was actually surprising. Like meeting you today, it's like from from the super unknown segment. Some other things I saw, I just kind of assumed more Little pocket water. pocket size. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gymnast, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> when did you when did you start the tinkering phase on, on skis? Oh man, skis happened late. It was actually kind of a funny funny thing. I you know I grew up in a constantly renovating house, so I had a carpentry carpentry background, and then went to engineering school, and then like did some other stuff, and then finally I started messing around with building skis. And my dad was actually like, "Well, shit, I'm surprised it took you so long." Like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've been waiting for you to pick this up for forever now. Like, so it wouldn't be until probably 20, 
24 or 25, I think it was, so maybe maybe four years ago, five years ago, that uh, started messing around with drawing them and piecing together my own little factory in my garage, my gravel-floored garage with a little backpack set up. And, uh, yeah, I just started building my own shit that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you also have a background in filming and doing some if you if you somehow haven't seen one of Logan's segments again, the the internet will uh, look up Logan Imlock and you'll you'll find some things quickly. But you'll also find some pretty rowdy things uh, pretty quickly. Um, and I think that's that's kind of interesting, right? I I think to be skiing at a really high level and and not just in a particular discipline, right? I mean to be looking pretty comfortable in urban and on some rails and on some pretty big lines. I don't know that, I guess I truly don't know how many people designing skis these days really have that kind of breadth um, when it comes to skiing. And frankly, at a company like Armada, given the range of skis um, that you guys are trying to make, I guess we can't quite be like, well, Logan only can, you know, handle floppy noodle park skis it's like well that's maybe not so true right it's an interesting background uh, it's funny because the the first my first designs for armada were kind of medium tailed big mountain charging skis which is kind of it was kind of a new it wasn't something i necessarily designed before um but you know taking what i like about ski design and stuff and translating into that realm and then we went out and skied them. It was like, holy shit, it was fun. Like, when you, when you, you personally, when you were, I mean, I presume you're still allowed to ski and stuff and go outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, just lock you in there. My, my knees still allow me to. <laughs> were you? What was your personal preference um, at the time, though? Were you, were you still skiing primarily centered up, kind of softer skis, pretty tip and tail rockered? Were you? Would you ski those sometimes, and then for bigger, big mountain lines, get into a more directional ski? How did you roll, personally? Um, personally, you know, I've always been kind of a creature of the environment that I've been thrown into. So it's like, when I was, you know, younger and skiing Powell a lot in Alaska, I'd, I'd go back, you know, three, four, five centimeters from center. By no means like a traditional big mountain mount nine centimeters back or anything. Um, but then, you know, slowly as I started, you know, the, the trips that I was always invited on with level one just cycled to being more and more urban related. And with that, my mount moved forward further and further. And, and then, you know, now that I'm back here and shit, I mean, I didn't do any urban this year. That is the first year I haven't done any urban since I don't know how long, but, you know, skiing more at... Alton Snowbird and getting more into doing some big mountain stuff, I've started shifting back a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think that I necessarily try to lock myself into one realm um, of ski or mounting by any means. Like, I think that having the ability to shift and move around, um, you know, makes you even better at designing them. Like when sure. Andy and I got out on the, the prototypes of these big mountain skis, 
I mean, shit, the initial amount I actually put further back than we ended up at. Like, it's a good gut check to see Logan's reaction amount to pair of skis versus where you have it in Excel or in CAD because Logan will indefinite or immediately say it's too far back. <laughs> and, and it's a great, like, it's. It, it, it's not just true that where you designed it is where it needs to be. Yeah. And Logan will always say, slam it forward. And he will Push always see it forward. See it forward. <laughs> and, and it forces other people to think about that too. Like, well, should we? And then we, you know, play with it. And then, otherwise you might not ever check that. If you didn't have such a gut reaction to it looks unbalanced, you know, maybe you wouldn't try it. But so it's cool. It's a, we push some of our mounts forward because of this. I mean, it's changed the product for sure. Even, I mean, this is always such an interesting one, right? I mean, we, we're hopping on, I mean, literally skis from everybody. And, you know, for me personally, I don't think I've ever reviewed anything at, like, true center. So my range will literally go from, like, minus 2 to minus 14. Oh, yeah. And you are, you know, at that point, my job is not to be like, well, this is what I like or don't like. It's like, okay, how would you ski this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's a little bit of a question, Logan. Like, it, at a certain point, if you're saying slam it forward, but if you're not spinning, why, right? And is it just, you know? And, and a lot of that could be a you know style of skis that I've become, I've, I've adapted to. You know, I've adapted to turning with so much fucking tail behind me mm-hmm. that it just feels, feels better. Yeah. I mean, having that much tail back there when you're jumping off of cliffs and shit is ultimately going to be better for you. But, like, I mean, the same token, we ended up, you know, I was like, slam that shit forward, move the bindings as far forward as we could. And then after Andy had stepped out of them, I, I stepped in and I was like, well, shit, actually, they do ski a little bit better back here, a little bit more. Hmm. So, hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it, I guess it's just because, mainly because I've adapted to skiing with so much fucking tail behind. Yeah. Like, but if we're developing a new ski and the guys that are accustomed to more center mounted is the customer, yeah. then yes, we're going to push it forward. Absolutely. You know, that's, have to. It's, mm-hmm. The midsole location is based on the kind of the customer that we feel is, the, is 90% of who's going to buy that product. Yeah. You know, so certain skis we'll push <laughs> forward that probably would ski a little bit better further back, but that's not what that should be. Or, no. you know, then we'll tweak the design even, but trying to make it fit the customer. And that's where Logan does a great job of saying, let's try it further forward. And then other people say, no, no, we've got another athlete that wants it further back. He, he will mount back of our mounting positions. You know, and so we kind of come to some consensus, all of us. And it's interesting and it's, well, maybe it's interesting to only the three of us and no one else <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, because some companies will say almost nothing about mount point and just kind of throw the hands in the air and they're like, yep, you know what, we're not you. <laughs> Go figure out where to put the thing. And I, and I actually kind of understand that. But generally, I'm frustrated by like, wait, y'all went through a number of iterations of this thing. You tell me where you liked this thing. If you really do feel like they're like, not every ski, but some skis might have a pretty broad sweet spot where you could push it plus three or minus three of a given mark. And and. I, I don't know. Um, How we attack that is if, if it's a ski that can kind of line up for two consumers or two end users and it skis really well in both positions is we'll mark two positions and one will say recommended on it. So we feel that 90% of our customers will mount that recommended, but when Logan likes it forward and that minus two and a half centimeter from dead center is better for that customer, we'll also mark minus two and a half. So as if to say, if you're more freestyle oriented, you like to be center mounted, this is your sweet spot. And if you're the regular consumer, we recommend it on the other mark. 
You know, so we don't just give a huge range. We don't just give a scale. We don't leave it blank. And I'd say with all of our directional skis, we try to just indicate one mark yep. because, and I mean, it's crazy. I'd, I'd never had demo bindings to slide around and, and check it out. And fuck, we were finding even just moving it a half a centimeter yep. gave the ski a completely different feel. Yep. And that was kind of a really fun exercise that we had last spring, um, was just taking a few skis out and moving them little by little by little and then really trying to find that sweet spot. Um, with all our directional shit. How, <clears throat> from the customer, do, is this something, and maybe this is a better question for customer service people, but I'm curious to know what, uh, what you guys have heard or know about this. Is that a point of feedback that you hear much from customers? Like, oh, I bought this ski. And do, do people want to talk about mount points? A lot. I would say more so before they mount because as yeah. we all are frustrated with skis that we have to drill our skis and yeah. you're kind of stuck to that choice that you make at the shop. We get a lot of phone calls that say, hey, where does so-and-so athlete ski this ski? That's the primary It's usually question. not where does it ski the best, it's where does this athlete that I know, where does Sammy ski that ski? Because that's who that person identifies with, where does Tanner ski that ski? And so we try and have that for our customer service too. And yeah, I would say this, that question comes up as often as anything. Really. But, that's, but that's the number one, but that's the way that question is framed. Where does so-and-so ski this ski? More so. More so than where should I ski my ski? Because that just leads to too many questions, <clears throat> yeah. you know, or so many questions. It's easiest if they are already identifying with someone else. You know, I think those customers know they're already kind of in the know, so they want to make that phone call and ask. Versus most people will just say, well, that's the mark. I will try it. I'll trust that. You know, where else would they put it? It must be that mark. Yeah. So we do get it a lot, though. Customer service is always on us for those types of questions, which can be tough because our athletes will often ski things and not necessarily the best place. You know, this is uh, for sure. They're, they're mounting center. You know, a lot of them will just put it where they put a tape measure tip to tail and they go center. Uh, un- uh, much to our chagrin, Logan and I, who know the ski pretty in- inside and out. Why do you do you ha- Why do you think that is? I mean, hopefully that's not a dumb question, but I mean, this is a common refrain, right? And the biggest when you know, I was talking to Cody Townsend about this. Like Cody Townsend, if you if you know how Cody skis, he started mounting his stuff dead center. And we were talking about it. I was like, dude, why? Like, why would you? It makes sense. I get it for a lot of other skiers. But so, yeah. talk to me about the phenomenon of the dead center mount. Well, I mean, to be honest, and Cody I can't personally speak for, yeah. but for a lot of people, I think it's a, a cultural thing with freestyle skiing. Uh, just to say, yeah, I got my fucking ski center mounted so I can go backwards just as well as I can go forwards. Um, Cody mounts probably just to give him more tail, like I was talking about. Yeah. I mean, that's what he says. Give him more tail so that when he's landing, he's got a bigger lever out there to support himself. Um, but for me, like, I mean, aside from a couple skis, I do mark mountain center or damn near. I mean, there's so many different centers. This is another thing that yeah. Andy and I have talked about a lot. I mean, there's contact points in them. There's side cut center. There's overall center. Like, there's a bunch of different centers that you're dealing with. But... Most time when people talk center, you pull a tape measure and mark the center and drill it right there. Um, and I'd say more than anything, it's just it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Like, you know, I like my ski center mounted, and it's a state. But those are two. But those are two different things, right? Cultural means this is the cool place to mount a ski, 
And that's a little different than like, I personally prefer my skis dead center. But is it? I mean, if you start it out as that's the cool thing to do and then you adapt to it, then that's become your Your comfortable there. I mean, and I think that that's where I had personally shifted. You know, I started because, you know, I was with, I think, Zach Davison was one of the first people I was with when I got twin tips, and he was mount, he was mounting his shit forward. And I was like, "That's the craziest shit I've ever seen." Like, I was like, "Well, I'm going to put it in the center, though." That's smart. Of it. Smart. Davies had just exploded. Sports. Yeah, always skiing backwards. I oh, guess. Dude, he Only took backwards. backwards. So Zach was like, he rode for Armada for a long time. I, I grew up with him and Tim Durchy and skied with those guys, and they. Zach, I remember, took the MSP pros and, and he mounted up like four centimeters forward of true center. Yeah. It was it was wild, huh. and uh, I mean that's so that's how you start mounting center is the people around you are center mounting, and then you're just your ski adapts to it. I mean, it's, and from the ski design side, it's such a it, why I do cringe at forward of centers. You know, the the waist, the narrowest part of your ski is somewhere. The the thickest part of your ski is somewhere, and those don't necessarily correlate to side cut center or true center. So like when you're actually mounting, you're changing your ramp angle, you're changing your location on the side cut, you're changing your location in the thickness, which is the stiffness. You're moving like crazy and it for sure affects the characteristics. Maybe you ski a little bit further back, your hips are back a little bit further or not as, you know, forward on the tongues of your boots or it, it comes down to your style, you know, and I think that's people that like to be centered ski in that right, in the right shape to make that work for them. Well, and we've had a lot of conversations about that as of recent, too. I mean, like, you know, just bare bones talking about freestyle skis, you're like, well, it should be symmetrical. It should be a symmetrical ski. The tail should be the same width as the nose. And, I mean, our best freestyle ski right now, Henrik's Pro Model, is nowhere near a symmetrical park mm-hmm. ski. But everybody loves it. They all love this ski so much. And... It's, I mean, we're trying to pin down what that's attributed to right now, but I mean, it's maybe the answer that the best freestyle ski isn't a symmetrical ski at all. I mean, yeah. it's maybe you mount it dead center, but it's not symmetrical. I mean, it's, it's there's so many different variables in the equation. Mm-hmm. It's fun to pick apart. Mm-hmm. So talking about you know, when we started this conversation on mountain points and we're, you're saying, um, smart Andy always does this, by the way, he has, I love the like methodical. He's like, we ask <laughs> what sort of ski, who are we designing it for? Then we make assumptions about the kind of style. Like this is, that's why we call him smart Andy. <laughs> <know>. Right. <laughs> but like, I think you, I mean, Armada has this ridiculous team, right? Just stacked. And so to what extent, I mean, there are, you know, you guys make products. If we're going to have a headquarters in Park City, some of those products need to be sold. So you have to, you two actually, have to deal with market demands, making skis that are attractive and, um, you know, uh, that want to be purchased by consumers, recreational skiers. And at the same time, I suspect, right, you've got a whole incredible team that you sort of have to make happy. Talk to me about that dynamic. Is it, do you get to sometimes tell team members to shut up? Do you sometimes just, how, how do you, 
how do you navigate that, those dynamics? I think where Armada is very different is that we're still answering to the athletes. Like, as I'm staring out at however many X Games medals on that wall from the guy who keeps walking back and forth out there, like, he is still the priority in his ski, and in many skis. You know, so it, I, I don't think I've yet told an athlete, don't worry, this is what the market would prefer, just get used to it. And I think that's really refreshing. From the top down, they ask that we fulfill the athlete's needs. You know, they're, you know the... the Certain models we know the athletes will never touch, and so we're allowed to maybe tune those a little bit more for the markets because an athlete isn't skiing a directional 88, you know, 85, what's our, like 85 waist, you know, glass price point ski. So those we can tailor, but yeah. the stuff our athletes are on, it's always the first question is, does it meet their needs? Yeah, yeah I mean, we have, we have a consumer driven handful of models, and then we have the rest of them are team driven. I mean, that's something really, really important to me as well, coming from an athlete's side, is I'll never tell one of them to shut up. Like, I want to hear everything they have to say. And, I mean, that's, that's something that I think both of us are hugely prided on, is none of our athletes are on some special model with a different top sheet. Not a single one. Right. All of them ski inline skis, and, you know, we make sure that we cater to their needs. Um, one of my favorite quotes is a quote from JP um, that was in a powder, powder interview that, that Rogi did. And he was talking about the JJ. Like, when the JJ first started, it was a completely athlete-driven ski that nobody bought. I mean, they were only making a hundred or a couple hundred pairs of them a year. Huh. Um, and then all of a sudden, that grew into probably the most popular powder ski on the market at the time. Um, and you know, it started with an athlete idea that nobody liked, but we stuck to our guns and we made it and we trusted that these dudes that are at the forefront of skiing right now know what the fuck they're talking about. It might take other people a little bit to catch on, but they know what they're talking about. So that's definitely something that we pride ourselves on is, is having our, you know, majority of our products products be athlete driven yeah but in order to build a round collection that fits you know the price points and you know like we can argue for every athlete we also make extra skis that they don't ski on that fits my dad you know who does not ski like our athletes and not that often but he will have a great day on these things yeah so then we have to put our minds in that brain also when we ski those skis or design those skis and it's just another aspect it's just another ski to design for us and it's it's very cool. That's really interesting to to think about the JJ. I that's part of the history, right? That I think I sort of forgot that part when you talk about this thing came out. It was designed by the athletes, or you know, the the uh, the intention for it was was athlete driven, and it didn't sell because now it's it's almost like, dude, that thing's been around forever. And and one of the questions I was going to ask today was like. So the JJ, right? Like that's been around forever. And I think it is great. We were talking a little bit about, you know, before we, we started recording about stuff takes time, right? To, to catch on and develop and ideas, you hatch an idea, you hatch a good idea and you better let that idea sort of simmer or resonate in the world. Like I, they don't, this stuff I don't know, we live in like a viral age, I guess, where if something isn't an immediate success, a success, then it's 
you know, left to the dustbins, but sometimes like, yeah, keeping something around, believing in it, saying this is what our folks want. It's, you know, look at Twitter, look at Instagram, look at all this stuff that we have. That's so commonplace now. Twitter was around like just about as early as the freaking internet was around. I mean, from a consumer side, weren't they? They were like early 2000s. I still don't know how to use it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't even have an account, but I just think that that phenomenon's funny that you do if you have a good idea. Sometimes it doesn't even marinate for a long fucking time before it catches on. But I think then the market moves. I think we've had JJ for a long time, and when it was the JPV Julian and the tail was a centimeter taller than the tip and it was standard cambered, like, and it was a 193, like, that was a... I owned that ski. It was pretty, I was not big enough to ski it. Like it was terrifying. Um, and then it evolved into another shape. And I think the people that have been in that shape now for five, six years are maybe their skiing is even changing. You know, they're probably not all hitting backcountry booters, you know, so do we focus on the backcountry booter aspect of that? Or are they all skiing really steep, you know, fall line directional? How does this JJ morph? Like what is the characteristic that it needs to become? So we've done a lot of meetings around here with, you know, with athletes and with ourselves and just kind of soul searching to figure out what is that customer now? Cause we nailed, we were a little ahead of it then we nailed it. And now we're trying to figure out what's going on there. And I think we're, we've got some cool things in store, but like, that's our focus is what, where is the ski market going? What's the customer, like the athlete, where are they going? Cause we want to try and stick with them with the right products. So that's why we have this development facility. We're cutting shapes that didn't work great. We're cutting shapes that work great. You know, we're trying a lot of different things right now. Yeah. Going to market with what is working for these guys. Um, we have to take this time to back up because I can't go a second podcast. Logan, we've talked about a bit about your background and skiing. I realize there's maybe a scenario here where Smart Andy has actually never skied. He just he, <laughs> like, he contemplates. I think about skiing. He a thinks lot. about skiing while like holding a brandy. But uh, oh, Andy, no, where brandy ever? Yeah, where uh, <laughs> where. Where did you grow up? Top, what's your... So I grew up in Colorado, kind of Denver area, actually, and then went to school in Boulder. So I spent a lot of years there. Um, and that's kind of where I started skiing more, more so. I mean, I skied my whole life growing up, but then that's when I kind of started dedicating many days of the week to skiing. Um, and then it was shortly after Boulder that I moved up to Seattle. So then I spent 10 years, up, 9 years up there, 8 years up there, I guess, just skiing in the Northwest. So kind of getting to know... That's a very different style than Colorado. So to go from like light and fluffy and I-70 traffic an hour and a half drive to, you know, 45-minute drive to maybe raining or but maybe, you know, six feet of snow. Yeah. So it kind of changes the whole perspective of skiing up there even. There's no big highways. It's just a different experience. It's probably more Alaska style. Like it's dreary. You're not going to have a bluebird epic high-fiving day, but the snow's going to be insane. So it was a lot of years skiing up there kind of enjoying it I guess just enjoying kind of the down the lower key side of things uh, and now back here for a, a whole year so chasing Logan around Alta like testing skis has been nuts like the terrain here is insane and then groomers over on Park City and it's it's all here and it's very cool so just trying different it's not northwest skiing it's definitely more Colorado style but uh, still a lot of awesome days yeah yeah Never think that he doesn't ski because he goes and tours out behind his house every day in the winter. Huh. Works out well. It's good. <laughs> but my, my focus has been to touring now. Like, it's a lot more into the, the evening night laps or, like, headlamped a couple times, you know, a little bit, or just, yeah, not so much about doing it for the entire day for a nine hours straight, but trying to find some good snow. And, 
yeah, it's been cool. So, but like four to five days a week in the winter, you're you're getting outside. Yeah, I think so. So, Duke's probably spending more time in the backcountry than than yeah, than resorts, than resort, than resort focus for sure. Yeah, which is cool because when we're developing new products, I think you get a lot of time to stare at it. If you're walking up the hill with it, you know, uh, you've got a lot of time to stare at these things. Yeah. So it's just been kind of fun to explore, like try something else out. You couldn't do that living in Seattle. You couldn't just go for an evening walk. But now, now it's right at the back door here. Okay. So. Um, no more tap hitting the table, Logan. I might hit this. Yeah. Sorry. We have to reprimand Logan. <laughs> Did you see there. Smart Andy try to reprimand you? Yeah. I think you missed it, though. No, I, think I messed up the tape measure and I set it on the floor. I'm just trying to get anything I could pick up and set down away from me. Is Tam still walking? I'm kind of just looking at you guys. We should just grab him next time. We should time grab him for a minute. But yeah. uh, when he can, walks, he can record him. a message on here or something yeah or I, I, I wanted just to hear like you guys record it like so the other day when you like stole my phone charger <laughs> yeah I don't have it back actually he does have it still he lost my lighter too I'll, I'll leave the reasons to your imagination uh huh <clears throat> um let's talk a little bit about um the park skis side of things um our this is something that our reviewer Scott Nelson has been kind of talking about a bit. He's, um, it's been interesting. He's shifted, um, shifted away from big, big comps where you're doing big, big tricks on big, stiff skis. And he's, it's been funny. I mean, he talks about this a lot in his reviews, but he's sort of, uh, I think where he was initially suspicious of like park skis getting wider and why the hell do they have tail rocker on them now? And he's like, wait, it turns out this is fun. And like, I'm having a really fun, nice time when I go out and I'm not trying to send massive gap jumps. And, but um, that, as he's been writing about that and I've been kind of following his trajectory, um, I, I think the question is from a commercial standpoint, um, are skinny, stiff, cambered skis kind of going away? Um, where, where are we with that in terms of park ski design these days? So I, I believe, yeah, I mean, they, they really are. They, you're going to have to keep some for those dudes that ski half pipe. I, the dudes skiing half pipe need a World Cup GS ski with a twin tip, basically. I mean, they need something stiff, sturdy, skinny, all that stuff. But aside from that, even competition park skiing, I don't think that that's a relevant tool because we have arguably the greatest slope style skier in the world in Henrik and he's skiing on a 99 wasted noodle and winning everything I mean so I think it gets into the same discussion as the JJ like Henrik was just ahead of the game like when he, he said that that's what he wanted and people are going to slowly start catching up with you know nose rocker Henrik ski doesn't have any tail rocker, but a lot of our park skis, I, I think actually every single other one does, um, just to give your tail that little bit of looseness and the ability to swivel around and, and do all that. So, yeah, I think that that's very much a relevant point that, you know, aside from half pipe skiing, that there's still a necessity for that ski in the half pipe realm. But I think aside from that, not so much anymore. Is it like a dial gauge between like stability and style? Like we try and somehow Hendrik has insane style with you know low stability in that ski, but like he's 
how much do we want to make a buttery, jibby, flexy noodle, and how much do we want to make something that can go 25 feet out of a half pipe? Yeah. You know, you kind of walk that, walk that line, you know, and what can they ski on? Yeah. And that's, I mean, we still do have something in the middle with our ARV series yeah. um, that, you know, our ARV 86 is, you know, very much has the DNA of a, a park ski, but it's got a little bit of tail rocker, you know, and it's got a little bit of taper in the noses and tails. Um, and that, I think, is going to be the shift for most park skis. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about sort of the ARV line, and we've got the new ARV 106. I definitely want to ask about that. But uh, sticking with Heinrich for a second, and I, um, I, I want to push that a little bit uh, with res- you brought it up so with respect to the JJ being like the JJ it had to drop one day and then become a thing that a lot of people then were trying to hustle and catch up and do something similar so I always get this confused but the first version of of, of uh, Henrik's ski was it was called the Al Dente and that was a, what year does that drop? Oh, that was 13? Thir- yeah. 13 through 15? Thirteen through. Oh. No, I think it was maybe before that because it was in year seventeen. Oh, when did it start? Yeah, yeah, yeah either 12, 12, 12 or thirteen. Twelve or thirteen. Um, and then it got a name change to the Dolo, yep. but was still the same chassis. Yep. Um, just to really solidify as Henrik's Pro model. Yep. Um, so yeah, that'll be. We're in year. It'll be year. But but if you I mean Logan, you talked to all the athletes the other day. Yeah, there. So I mean, one of our as we kind of got talked with design considerations and what year of design we're in, like that's a ski that we're looking at to maybe do an overhaul on. And every athlete I've talked to is, don't touch it. It's the perfect park ski. Huh. Don't even touch it's it. It's terrible feedback as an engineer trying to design a new ski. <laughs> I'm do trying to thing. explain to him. I'm like, you can always make something better. You can always make it better. We can do something to make it uh, better. I'm and with your athletes. <laughs> you too. All of them are like, you can't touch it. It's the greatest. Huh. And finally, after pulling teeth and stuff, I, I got with all of them, and I was like, okay, tell me three things you love about it and three things you hate about it. And obviously, all of them are like, well, we don't hate this, but maybe we could do this. Then huh. you finally start to piece together a little list of things we could do to improve upon it, huh. um, along with you know our own insight as to how we can make that ski a better tool for those guys, hmm. um, which is kind of what we're diving into right now with possible redesign on it hmm. who's the outlier on the team who, who if, if there's a consensus everybody's kind of over here and the one person that's over here i don't know that we have one in that sense i mean like tanner and sammy are pretty aligned in in what they like um henrik and phil are henrik aligned. and phil are, and, and hornbeck and kim are all aligned in, in kind of what they like um we have Torinsky's all of them. Yeah, Torrance <laughs> likes. He just loves them all. So Torrance is going to blow people's minds. He's actually an incredible all mountain skier. Incredible. Oh. So as soon as he, you know, starts making his transition that all pro park skiers do, um, people are going to get blown away. Huh. He's really good at skateboarding too. I think he's just one of those kids that's good at good everything. Yeah. I hate that. Um, and then we have you know Todd Laguerre, and we have kind of. This guy and Jakob uh, are kind of in the same realm now, but then we also have this guy, Toph Henry, that's been around for a bit, but... Um, or Big Mountain. Kind yeah, of he's, a, he's a, a, a steep skier, you know, in, in Chamonix, and 
we're starting to slowly bring him in more with giving more feedback and stuff because he's he just got second, I think, at the Big Mountain Comp in Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's yeah, an incredible week. skier, and we're starting to bring him in more. And him and Todd and Jakob are kind of really aligned in what mm-hmm. they're doing right now. Um, so I don't think, really think they have any outliers, you know. And, and These guys all hang out outside of the office, I think, an insane amount. So I think they kind of generate their what they're skiing on and what they're doing together. So maybe when they come to us, it is more of a unified voice because they just... They're always filming together. They're hanging out together, which is great for us. But maybe we miss that outlier then. <laughs> What's Todd skiing the most? What's which ski is Todd um, the most? He was previously on the Norwalk um, the most, and then kind of shifting towards all the Sham guys really, really like the AKJJ, um, huh. and Todd ended up really liking the AKJJ. As and well. Invictus One Hundred Eight. And Invictus One Hundred Eight. Yeah, Todd was touring on that a lot. All of them actually in Sham were touring on that a lot. The One Hundred Eight Ti. Yep. Um, sorry, curious though. I mean, Todd's a fairly big guy too, right? Uh, I don't know what he weighs, but he's, he's I don't know. Six one six two. He's big. Yeah. Six one six two. It's funny, like to me, the he's probably what length of Norwalk? Do you know? Believe he's in the eighty nine Norwalks. But like a one eighty eight Invictus one hundred eight is way more ski mm-hmm. and a Norwalk. It's funny he uh, he actually started liking the one seventy eights better. He went on a photo shoot and he had, you know through when we send him skis we send him to eighty eight because he's tall. I think he's yeah. in the six four ish realm and uh, we sent him one seventy eights because that's all we had the graphic samples in or something and he came back loving that ski. So then Logan and I both scratched our heads like why. Why is it? And Todd related it back to side cut radius. I think we've got a 23 meter side cut on the 78 and like a 26 on the 88. And we were kind of trying to break down, is it the flex? Is it the length? Is it the side cut? Is it the, you know, the, hmm. essentially the turn shape that he was preferring? And for the rest of the year, he rode the 78s and he's a tall guy. And he never felt like he had a speed limit with it or that there was a big issue, but that was his, you know, he, he went down a size just for the feel of it. The ski skied better. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to ask because you like though I personally hate the Norwalk. Yeah. Like I, it's just like I would take that Invictus. <laughs> this is the second podcast in a row. He's in. That, that, <laughs> that, yeah. So I just am like those seem like apples to oranges, yeah. and so, so if he's skiing both. But having said that, I also think and and several of us felt like the I guess is it one eighty eight or one eighty nine? I don't know what you're calling the the Invictus one hundred eight. One eighty eight. Mm-hmm. That feels like a pretty big ski. It's a mm-hmm. huge ski. And I was surprised. Like it's when, a straight ski. When Armada dropped that, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I was not expecting mm-hmm. you know, the, the needle to push that far toward kind of bigger, stiffer ski. Yeah. Um, bigger, stiffer, and straighter, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't retain kind of the bending geometry that yeah. helped it get into a turn and really arc a nice round shape. Mm-hmm. So I think... The length wasn't the issue, but I think there's a lot of the design that made it go straight and fast, which um, isn't necessarily forgiving and playful. And I don't know if you know anything about Hans, one of our founders, but he is a really, really, really good skier, and he really likes to ski fast. He likes to ski straight. He skis big stuff, and previously, we didn't necessarily have a tool for him, so that whole Invictus line kind of turned into the Hans Pro model. Hmm. Um, and he was on for the most part, the, oh, really only the seventy eight. I mean, that yeah. was his charging ski. <clears throat> yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was designed around that. So, given that, I mean, should we expect maybe some tinkering to happen with the Invictus one hundred and eight? Yeah, I mean, we've had Todd in the office quite a lot, 
um, working on various projects, but yeah, I think it's a target for sure. It's been around for several years. We've now digested it fully, I think, ourselves of what we could improve or what we could tweak. So, I, you know, it'd be safe to say we're looking at it. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit more about um, maybe about the ARV line as a whole, and because I think to locate that. You were talking a bit about the ARV eighty six being. Um, uh, how, how did you how did you put that? Uh, so the I mean, looking at the line as a cohesive line is kind of an easier way to do it. Um, you know that we transitioned from the eighty six, which is you know when you look at it on the wall, it looks more like a traditional park ski. There's very little taper. Um, there's a pretty small amount of nose and tail rocker. Um, then we transitioned to the ninety six, which is more nose taper, tail taper, more nose and tail rocker. Um, then we go into the 106, which is, you know, that, that sort of mid 100, like 105, that sort of area is really, really growing right now as an all mountain ski, um, especially out West. So, you know, that was an area that we had the TST in previously, um, that, you know, did well for a long time. And we kind of saw that as an opportunity to, you know, take what was previously disjointed and put them into a, a nice family, you know, that, that we can go from a park to, you know, a wider park ski slash East Coast all-mountain ski to a West Coast all-mountain ski um, while retaining the same design language, you know. When you look at the, the skis sitting next to each other on the wall, there's they, they flow nicely from, you know, a park ski to an all-mountain ski slash wide park ski to a, you know, a, a true all-mountain ski. Um, mm -hmm. And that's sort of, that was the design intent, all of them being freestyle oriented. So the, the 106, and we were, we've been debating this, right? Like we're, we're, we're going to take a 106 uh, down to New Zealand and we were, we're always kind of asking the question of like, well, which length should we get on? And, and so Andy and I were talking a bit about that, but that ARV then, I think I, I wasn't actually sure. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be an Invictus, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know how how freestyle this thing was going or if it's like well no like it's still a suitable ski for like a directional skier or like uh careful there like we really are this is more of a you if you're not spinning the ski doesn't make sense where, where yeah our, our design i mean the design brief on it but to just go literal was you know the videos online where these guys are just pointing it down steep slopes i mean the candide stuff was insane and mind-blowing and i think that's the style of skiing. Tanner's at it, where he was chasing, is it Sammy around the mountain, or Tanner and... Sander Hadley. And, you know, how fast they can charge and then spin off of things, and then land in crappy snow, and then mob out of it, and then land something switch, and then keep going. Like, that That was the design brief. Yep. So... <laughs> insane. So, basically. yeah, exactly. Like, make something really hard. Like, make something that skis all this insanely well, which is not... A, you could do it with a metal laminate ski. Like, that would be the most solid, stable, damn thing. But it's not maybe the most fun either so like now toggle it back towards the fun side so we, we, we need to make something that's stable and chargy but then is also very fun so like that that was kind of the, the position to watch or to walk it wasn't make a really fun ski that you can some days go charging on it was the other way around mm -hmm. so that was kind of a good problem to have mm -hmm. um, and the athletes have been super receptive to testing it so that, it's been great like it's been a cool process but it wasn't something we didn't want to we feel like the ARVTI um you know, one of our older models did resonate with that directional skier, mm -hmm. um, even though it had a fat twin tip on it. 
So that wasn't a demographic that we wanted to lose. Mm -hmm. um, so the ski is very, very competent for a directional skier as well. Like, um, while maintaining, like I ski on the 188 and I ski at one centimeter back from center. Like that's where I ski at. And it's yeah, kids, kids, kids these days. But it, um, yeah, I thought the 180 would be the sweet spot in length, and ever really everyone in the office is gravitating towards the 88. Like they're they're skiing it up a little bit longer because it's got a little bit more tail rocker. Um, it just skis a little bit easier. So I think it's easy to ski because of the side cut and the rocker shape. But then the length gives it stability. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have traded. We know we need stability, but let's achieve that through length. And then we know we want looseness, fun, playfulness. Let's achieve that through kind of a, a different side cut and then tip and tail rocker. You know, with taper, different side cut, radii, kind of the way we tweak this whole thing. Um, the side cut and the rocker made it fun. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of balanced. I'll be curious. Have yeah. you skied the 88s or the 80s or any any of the 106s yet? No. Perfect. This is brave new world. Good. Excellent. I but got, I got back there ready for <laughs> But now that I know that since I want to be like Logan when I grow up, yeah. I'm not mine at minus one. Slam them forward. Yes, yeah, slam them forward. <laughs> what is the what is the recommended line on these? We've got a minus two and a half on there and then a minus six. Yeah. And minus six is the recommended. I think it's the guy that comes up to the booth or the, the normal customer that walks up and says, I want to ski like this. Yeah. And then everybody else who wants to jump off of stuff and spin off of stuff, they'll see that minus two and a half, and that's the sweet that's a great spot. Yeah. It skis really well right there. Again, it just gets back into my preference of having more time. <laughs> Fucking kids. <laughs> Logan's trying to keep his street cred yeah. up. Yeah. As, he, as, he, as he creeps towards As his new scorer's points go down. <laughs> exactly. As I creep towards five back from seven. Right. From center. Right. Um, what, um, what other ski in the 16-17 line are you guys particularly excited about for whatever reason you like how it skis or the design process on it um besides arv i mean kind of the big the other one that we maybe skied more and more was a that we took to all the magazine tests and that we took everywhere was invictus 99 ti for the days that the 108 ti was a little bit wide the 99 is a great filler in there so if you're skiing you know refrozen chunder and bumps and I think that 99 is a little bit better than our 95 was at. So 95 TI got was eliminated, and now it's a 99 TI. So it's a completely different customer than ARV. It's your directional, classically trained, drives the boots, drives the front of the ski, metal laminate ski. But if the 108 was too wide and you're getting bucked around, then the 99 was a sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So kind of between the, one, the ARV 106 and that new 99 TI hmm. has been probably what most people are bouncing between. And then another one that kind of came through was the new B-Dog. Um, which is a new freestyle ski for us that sits underneath the Idolo in waist width. Um, so East Coast kids that maybe thought that the Idolo was a little bit wide at 99 underfoot, we came down to 90 um, with the new B-Dog and then gave it a similar geometry to, to the Idolo and, and flex pattern. Um, really soft, huge buttering platforms out at the ends. Um, and yeah, it's, that was kind of wrapping out the new, that new new for this year. And then talk to me about the, you know, touring skis has been a more recent development for Armada, right? Um, f first of all, where, where are we with the declivity? Declivity still, so our, our touring line, as we're saying, is Kufo. Yep. Kufo 103, Kufo 108, and declivity. Yep. Both are still in play for 1617. Um, declivity ski is still very specialized. 
It's still a specialty ski. I think it's one that, you know, employees in here have rarely do they have they had this thing out there. You know, I've skied it a half a dozen days, a dozen days, and still trying to kind of harness what it is, you know, figure it all out. But it's, I think it goes back a little ways in touring world where guides, you know, in Europe and the, the guides that were spending lots of days on snow were asking for a damp ski, something that wasn't so fatiguing before this lightweight phenomenon take off, took off. So it's the guys in the you fall, you die territory, people that lock their toe pieces out, people that want security and stability over, you know, ability to climb thousands of vert every single day. So maybe it's more of a throwback to the, you know, early to the mid 2000s, you know, when touring was kind of in that metal laminate, straighter mountaineering lifestyle before maybe the whole, the, the masses took over. Yeah. I think that's where JP was skiing was in. You know, it was mountaineering, gnarly terrain with an ice axe. Yeah. You know, or it wasn't skiing; it was mountaineering, mm-hmm. like straight up. It was funny because the first time I ever saw that ski, I was like, "This is just a cambered." It the the thirteen fourteen vocal mantra. Yeah. I was like, "It's a vocal <laughs> mantra with right. a bit more tip rocker," yeah. and like weight was almost identical. Sure. And guess what ski I actually like in really <laughs> shitty conditions and sure. like gnarly terrain is like that ski because it's so predictable. But uh, I, I wondered about that. And I, I think everything you just said makes a ton of sense. And yeah, like there's no question. You said it really well, Andy, but there's no question. Like as we're going lighter and lighter, mm-hmm. we're moving further and further away from that predictability, mm-hmm. stability, um, but it's a lot harder to roll up a ton yeah. of vert on skis like that. And it's a discussion that is very, very similar to what we did with fat skis six years ago. You know, the whole industry was making something 130 plus underfoot and super fat, and we've pared down from that. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many skis on the market right now over 125 on the waist. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that the whole market is going to do that with this whole light ski phenomenon, if not, I mean already coming back Mm -hmm. coming back off the brink of the how light can we go exactly Mm -hmm. and it was how fat can we go then it's how light can we go now and then maybe i don't know if we're already seeing it if the bindings are the precursor to this you know people went really lightweight in their bindings then beast came out and kind of people you know first of all we were heavy in touring bindings then seemed to swing ultra light plum guy the plume stuff yeah now we're back to the kingpin now has kind of added weight back and added stability back and we're adding, we're starting to add things, but I think we're, we're kind of, we've seen both sides of the pendulum now and we're looking for the sweet spot. Yeah. So is that metal laminate declivity the sweet spot? I, I'm not sold on that for sure, but for now I'd say it's more specialty focused. It is interesting. I mean, it, yeah. So how fat can we go dialing that back? How light can we go maybe dialing that back? For a while, though, how rockered can we go? Yeah. And we've seen some of that getting dialed back. So Camber coming back in. I mean, there was a while where everyone had reverse camber everything. But yeah. now we found out that it's a lot better ski if you have rocker with camber underfoot. And, you know. It is. That actually is really interesting. And, like, if we went back, you know, 10 years to, I mean, 2006, I guess we're already... We're already starting, we're playing with rocker profiles, maybe not so... two years almost, like yeah. the initial spatula stuff yeah. is here, yeah. But it's like, what the hell happened between like 1970 to <laughs> 95 with skis? Like, why, 
Well, they made the cap ski. That was kind of a big one, right? That that or the, it resurged. Yeah. It went from cap in the old days to sidewall to cap was huge again. Foam cores. Yeah, a lot of new materials. So it was material development, right? right, right. With Hexel coming in, yeah. uh, with Solomon doing the monocoque, with you know, kind of everyone had to have that. I mean, that was the thing. Um, when was I mean, the seventies was metal in there as well, like as a laminate mm-hmm. in the ski with mm-hmm. ARC stuff. And, mm-hmm. Oh, no. I wasn't alive then, so right. I can't really fucking tell you. We're still on the quest for <laughs> materials. You know, I think that's... We, yeah. we still see materials vendors that are coming through town for all the aerospace stuff in Salt Lake, and yeah. they've always got some really overpriced material that we can never afford, but they've also got kind of the offshoot that's now five years old or three years old and are starting to make its way into consumer products. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they've run that machine now for five straight years doing wind turbine stuff, yeah. and now we're just kind of tapping into these markets, these weaves... And I think we're seeing it in more brands now. So as, as those materials become commercially available, we can put them in our products and test them and play with them. And that's why we've got, you know, three pallets of cores back there that we have no intent to use, but we'll play with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to be in production, yeah. but there'll be something to learn from, something to base a trial off of. And we got really fortunate that we have a really, really good composites rep that lives across the highway. And he'll just wander in here every once in a while and be like, hey, I got Check some this new out. shit. Check this out. And it's like... <laughs> We've got about 15 or 20 rolls of stuff back there that we haven't been able to play with yet, but it's it's really interesting. I mean, he dropped off a skateboard the other day from some guy that was using some new new material, and I mean, it's we're, we're fortunate in that manner that we're going to be able to play with lots of materials, figure out what we can bond to. I mean, that's that's the biggest battle right there. Um, hmm. yeah. So, Andy, we're not. We're not done on the materials front. No, don't, I don't, don't I don't settle in. I don't think at all. I think, I mean, our core, so to speak, the, the component of our skis that makes it ski so much like an Armada is our core, our wood core. You know, and that's kind of something we talked about earlier on the tour, but just walking through the building, we, we use our, our specific core for a reason. And other brands have walked away to just a fully lightweight core, a, a foam and wood core, you know, a super lightweight wood core. And I think... What retains our stability and dampness is our wood core. So we can lighten it up everywhere else. But now what's going to be the next material that maintains that dampness but gets all of it lighter? You know, is there a new material? So I don't, no way are we done. You know, there will be new materials next, next month that we'll be playing with. And then the trick is to play with them, see if they work, and then see if you can actually manufacture with it, if you can put it into full-scale production. You, you said something when we were looking at different cores and talking about cores that um, I guess I'll have to go back and listen to our <laughs> roundtable podcast again, but I, I, I said, I, I'm not sure that I'd heard people talk about it this way, but in this age where we're seeing how, you know, where we can lighten up a ski and still keep uh, performance characteristics that we want, mm-hmm. you said that you guys were trying to preserve the core, not remove weight material from that core as much as possible. And I was saying, I, I don't think I'd heard that talked about actually. Um, so it, there was almost a like, leave the core alone, figure out around mm-hmm. the rest of the ski with materials. Is that- I think if ski performance is your number one characteristic, then leaving the core alone and changing your glass layers so that you have less resin in your ski, you have less composite in your ski, different layup of those fibers so you're not dealing with so many that are ineffective but you know really effective efficient thin fiberglass you can stick with your heavier core maintain a similar stiffness and get a better skiing ski that is still lighter 
without just going all the way to the other side and being light, flighty, you know, unstable. And I guess that that's one area where Andy and I have kind of decided to like take a stand and be like, okay, you know, so many brands are, we make super light skis and then we have these skis that you can ski on. And we want to make a stand that like, you know what, we're not going to sacrifice any downhill performance again. Like that's just not something we're going to sacrifice. Um, you know, we're going to make a light ski, but we're not going to make it ski like shit. We know we'll get beat up in the weight race, you know, to the lightest weight ski, and I think we're acknowledging that. Yeah. That, but we'll take the stand of going a few grams heavier for something that a guy like Toff can ski in a freeride world tour. Exactly. You know, with his JJs or with his whatever he's on, or Todd can ski in Jackson or Alaska. Yeah. Looking at Armada's history and trajectory, we've said that the Armada as a company is now 15 years old? Yeah. 15. Yeah. 15. Mm-hmm. Two. Um, you guys come in and everybody sees this brand and knows the brand Armada, but like you two now are the guys, you know, talking with the athletes, talking with the athletes that have been here for quite a while, uh, guys like Tanner. But what, how do you think about this? I mean, in terms of coming in to work with a brand, the notions of like brand consistency versus like, screw it. They hired us. So therefore you get us. And this is how the two of you guys, you know, we'll put it that way. Want to think about ski design. How, how How do you think about that? Or what, what kind, is there a responsibility, a kind of legacy responsibility? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge importance to both of us. I mean, you know, Growing up, I'm, I'm a little bit younger, so I was, like, in in it when Armada started, like, and I was, like, an Armada kid, so I feel anytime we do anything, we have a huge responsibility to what's been paved before us, um, not to mention, kind of, our third leg in ski design is, is Hans, yeah. you know, who helped found the company. He's a co-founder, and he sat in every market, you know, he's the one that assembled the athletes, he went and found the first factories. And he used to sit with the old engineer at the CAD desk of the factories, you know, where we were making these skis, and he's been in every discussion. And, you know, he can't draw in CAD, and he doesn't do the Excel stiffness calcs, but he's got the DNA. Yeah. And so we're all, he's, he's in every one of our discussions. Yeah. So it's pretty cool to have him tied into everything still. But then it's, it's, as best we can, you know, I take kind of the scientific approach and try and quantify what was the old design, you know, we've got a ton of math behind everything, but like why was the old design what it was and what factors are we tweaking to make the new designs? It's not just a blank slate. Um, even it might seem that way, but it's, we're always looking at the old designs. We're characterizing off of older shapes, older skis, athlete feedback, you know, to make sure we're not going 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And then bringing our flavor to it. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's rationale. Exactly. Yeah. That is pretty interesting though. Like, the, that per, that particular kind of checks and balances, it feels like the government kind of like, <laughs> if you two were like, you know what, this is totally the ski and you guys both loved it, but if the team didn't... Right. Yeah, then what have we done? <laughs> and, and that's terrible, because that's who we, that's our number one customer really, yeah. is our athletes. So everything goes to them. You know, the safest play we can do is maybe what you'd prefer, don't change those things. Like, okay. you know, and, and for us, we recognize that. Like, why change it just to change it? We're not... A, we don't have the money to change things just to change things. You know, so for us, it's actually kind of encouraged to, if it's working well and everyone loves it, keep doing it. Yeah. You know, let's not just, let's not just dye it a new color and call it something else and then, you know, raise the price or something. So, 
I mean, it does hit a point. Like with, with the Edola that everyone says, don't change it. Um, you know, we got to be real. The ski's going to be five or six years old, like, you know, with, with no changes. And, and that's where I like to get in with those guys and be like, okay, like put it to them and say, we can make this better. Like, so let's figure out how to do that. But it's not just you in a room tweaking no. things. I think that's the key, right? Exactly. That's, Logan asked bouncing tons of questions off these guys yeah. to get some information. Yeah. And then ultimately, everything comes down to a conversation between me, Andy, and Hans. Like, you know, let's, let, we've got our new ideas, and we've got Hans's guiding hand, and then we've got the input from the team. And it really, really transfers into an awesome, like, cohesive process. So the other reality, so Armada's 15 years old, and, and um, we may have talked about this before we started recording, I don't know, but uh, you know, we were just talking about that occasionally, Andy, you'll, you'll still sort of get the question like, oh, cool, like, are you guys new or something <laughs> right. like that? Is that a new, brand new company that yeah. you guys just started? And I think, too, then there's maybe on the flip of that, there's guys like Logan, and I think I fall a little more in this camp where you kind of think of Armada as old guard like mm-hmm. kind of been around forever now and so the reality then is armada is living in kind of this pretty interesting uh middle ground i guess i would say it's it's you know one of the very largest indie companies if not the largest some people would throw armada sort of assume like oh yeah armada right you like Rosignol, Solomon, Atomic, Armada that fits in that camp. Others are like, oh, Armada, that's like a moment or ON3P right. or something. And so it's this interesting middle ground, right? And I, the realities, the kind of market realities or the, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how to verbalize the question very well, but it's, it's an interesting position to occupy when, on the one hand, if the company is going to continue to kind of grow, you're looking at some pretty big, really old players, right? Mm-hmm. To go up from there. At the same time, you've got all of these new companies and they're popping up every month almost. And it might be the hot new company of the moment or something, you know, occupying that middle ground. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's something that gets talked about much here. If, if, if there's a, if, if, if what I'm outlining actually resonates or, you know, sure. what is that? What do you have to say about that? No, I mean, it's all true. Like when we just looked at some SIA data the other day and, and not only in terms of, you know, that feel, but in the numbers, it says exactly that as far as volumes and, and revenue and all that. We're in this crazy valley that we're just kind of, we're, we're the only one occupying that space. There's no one above or below us that's really close in that area. So it's an, it's an interesting place to be because I mean, you're right. We want to be that, that company that has the homebrew feel and the, the, you know, the feel of all these smaller companies, but you know, push those volumes to make that jump into the upper echelon. And it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's something that's going to take time. And I think that we're situating our line in, in a manner at which we can push volumes like that. I think a lot of brands, not it just not in the ski world, but in just the world of brands being brands, hit this point. And I think what we've started to do more so recently is really look back at what made us so successful to grow out of the, the small, small, small to get to where we are, and realize that that's still a strength of ours, and that 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 might be exactly the propulsion to get us to the next level. 
rather than looking at the guys at the top and saying, what are they doing that we should copy to get to that next level? You know, I, I think we could roll out a junior rental program and sell a ton of skis, but that's maybe not why, you know, Atomic is where they are. And that's not what's going to put us up in that next bracket. You know, it's our amazing athletes, it's our content, it's our brand that got us to where we are. And we really have to pour gas on that fire to continue rising instead of just copying what the bigger brands are doing. We want to rise while remaining authentic. Like, one thing we don't want to do is just fucking sell out and make a system ski and, like, just flood the market with it. But truthfully, we don't know how to make a system ski no, or sell it or distribute <laughs> it or put our brand on it. So like, we also know that's not our strength. So when, when I think you could call a sales guy in from some big, huge company out there, and that's what they would recommend doing. Just sell what the big guy sells. It'll work, you know. It'll put you online with Coca-Cola. But if, you, if you're not Coca-Cola, you're not going to sell that much product. So it's doing it our way. And I think this space, you know, I'm watching Tanner continue to walk by the windows out here. Like, it's flavor that makes us ourselves, which is really cool to watch and be, you know, in the middle of, really. So how, how we can maintain that lead of the indies and maybe grow into the next category is our goal. But for now, we're just trying to make cool skis and waiting for winter to come back so we can ski again. Pieces fall as the hay. If if the next time we yeah, see Tanner walk by, okay. well, you just get him next time because I know. Oh, okay, Logan's <laughs> leaving now to go get Tanner. There's one very specific question I, I want to ask him. Uh-oh. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and Andy, you were, I mean, part of seeing this space in Park City, um, you know, and looking at the capabilities you guys have here i mean talk about that in terms of I mean, you, there's some resources here right sure um, so starting in california you know costa mesa where our motto was founded was really a good attitude place like it, it had great culture great food great scene the surf was insane but what we've added here is kind of now back to the mountain component of the brand which is important you know to not drive what was mammoth from costa mesa six seven hours like that was that that was tough yeah um so i think being the, our proximity to a mountain town now is huge. As far as, you know, dip out in the morning and go product testing in Alta, and we're back into the office by noon, you know, ready to work and build the next round of skis. Um, but what we've added is our R&D facility here. So we didn't have any way to build skis in Costa Mesa. Now we've got ski presses, you know, CNCs, all the raw material inventory. Um, we've developed a lot of processes to now manufacture our own prototypes. So the, the main one of the main incentives here, and anyone can stop by the office and we give them tours like every single day, uh, would be our R&D capabilities. So that's new for us. Um, we've always had factories that we could go to and get skis made, but now you can do it in-house and internal, which has been a, a cool change. And different for the athletes. They're not used to that either. You know, Torin was in here the other day, and he's just super stoked to start making his new ski. And he's on probably our oldest, straightest, you know, most unchanged ski ever. And he's excited to prototype something new. So... Still looking for, still looking for Tanner. He's elusive. Hey, we lost Tanner. <laughs> He's been I'm around sure a lot this I'm sure we're <laughs> It's, but it's the culture. Like, you might He's. Andy is literally <laughs> looking out the window outside to see where Tanner went. Um, that's pretty great. I checked all the usual spots. <laughs> well, next time he, next time he rolls yeah. out in front, you you go you go yeah, grab him. I will. Um. So, on a related note, Andy, you, um, prior to Armada, you had uh, been at K2, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I had 
I had asked you about this, um, and you had actually said that this is something that you know you would be interested in talking about. But again, when we're, we've, it's such a hot topic, and for really good reasons, I think. Um, but in terms of where you you are manufacturing, right, as mm-hmm. a company, and I was actually just yesterday at NV Composites um, in Ogden, and and that's a pretty impressive uh, sure. brand new building state-of-the-art facility yeah it's it's pretty cool what they're doing there but we talked about this issue with them too but I thought your perspective was interesting because as you guys now um, you and Logan uh, are doing more of the development here right here like a few mm-hmm. feet away um, but now you are uh, the final production and the, the batch the volume is getting done in Austria right mm-hmm. and You've now worked with a factory in China. You're now working with a, a factory in Austria. Um, what's the difference? Like, you know, and I think it's funny, right? Like, I think sometimes we hear the, oh, whatever, you know, that's terrible. You guys are manufacturing in China. Screw mm-hmm. off. Do those same people, is it better if you're, is it cool, though, if you're manufacturing in Austria? Like, you know, and I've sometimes yeah. said, like, Sometimes this feels to me that things are getting a little bit xenophobic here. Like, um, I, I understand, like, build stuff right here. That's a mm-hmm. legitimate and a fine, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, va- value. Um, but curious about this issue of working with... I think a good example of this is we started a production for... Or a, a test run for 1718, and uh, Logan drew up, like, a ski shape, kind of a geometry to it that uh, basically emailed to me and... During my flight over to the factory, I passed it on to the factory, and I arrived at the factory, and this is in Austria, and got to the CAD designer's desk, and he had the whole design printed up nicely on his desk, and uh, he invited me to sit down, and I had my coffee, and it was a totally normal morning in Austria at the ski station where we were designing skis, and he looked at me, and he picked up the piece of paper and tore it in half and said, this this was a waste of my time. (laughs) Like, I should have never printed this or read this, not... Not in my lifetime and not in my factory, is what this guy said in Austria. And I just kind of, like, it was a total shock. Like, I had not really reviewed the design thoroughly, so I don't know if maybe we just missed some notes. But, like, here it was not that crazy of a thought. And, and this is his stern reaction, his, his response. And so I spent the whole time backpedaling of, like, well, which components are not feasible? And, well, what part of this? And why can't you do this? It wasn't just a yes or no for me. It was a little bit more gray. And, and I forced him to eventually kind of explain all the different categories of why this design was not going to work and which machines it would fail out of. And having worked in China for so many years, you could send that design to them, and they wouldn't necessarily throw up their arms right away and say, no way. They would say, show me how. And so then it would be up to us to run around the factory and like develop a process and tweak a machine differently and show them how to do it. And then they would jump on and maybe try a couple and then tell you no or... Whereas in Austria, we kind of had to sell it first. We had to really kind of convince them that this was going to be an option. Um, and then it was okay. We're, you know, I don't know if it's... In China, I think you can get away with more, certainly laborious tasks. Something that might take more hand work to, to achieve. And then you can pull it off. And in Austria, I think just the machinery is so robust. The processes are so well dialed. Everything in Austria has such a good process control that your complexity is in a way limited. So you're going to get exceptional quality that can't be beat, but your options aren't as wide. And I think in Asia, you've got more options, but you've got to really focus on your quality. And if you can nail your own quality, you can produce as good of results. 
you know, but you've got, you really have to kind of control the variables in one scenario. In the other scenario, they just take the variables away. So we're trying here with our R&D facility to prove that our variables are in fact good ones and that we should try these things. And, and in the end, you know, there's, there's no, there was no Austrian man that just said, no, do not do this. You're done. Like, you know, they, we looked at it and we assessed it and we found ways to implement certain parts of it. Yeah. It was just met very differently. So process control versus like human control. I guess in Asia, you've got more ability to try new things, but you've really got to keep an eye on quality and people do an excellent job there. And in Austria, you really have to decide, is it worth the million euros of investment to make a new machine to do this? <clears throat> so it's more investment capital intensive in Europe and maybe in China, a little bit more labor intensive. Mm -hmm. So how can we balance any manufacturing, I guess, worldwide? And that's fun. And that's where like, it, when he told me that that's what happened with my drawings, I was stoked. I was like, <laughs> well, fuck yeah. Like, let's make these dudes angry. Yeah. And then luckily we have Smart Andy over there. Because right. if they would have told that to me, I would have been like, well, fuck you. <laughs> What's your problem? But luckily, like, Andy's there and can like, hey, well, how could we make this happen? And let's figure this out together. Like, that's... That's fun. Like, I yeah. hope that we do that every year. I hope no, and I think what we did now is that factory has a new process, and I think they're going to start doing this for, you know, for more of our skis next year. So from a stern no to, like, teaching it or, like, and then they really ended up solving the whole problem and doing it themselves. Um, it wasn't that we walked in and said, install this machine and do this and this and this, but just different re reactions to new problems. Mm -hmm. They have incredible engineers at all the factories we work with, like, way smarter than I'll ever be because like the, the, even just the drafting programs they use are yeah. fucking insane yeah it's great it's a, it's a phenomenal place to visit and to go work in the factories and, but you know at the end of the day there's, it's still people I mean we don't have an automated ski builder anywhere in the world as far as I've seen there's no robot in one country that makes skis and in the other country it's all people I mean it's all it's virtually the same process if you're in Asia or in Germany or in Austria it's just, it's a very, at this stage, everyone is kind of caught up in the manufacturing. Everyone's got their own tweaks and their own really specialties, but, um, you know, there's no clear winner or loser, I don't think. It's one of the final whenever you see handmade skis. Every single fucking ski in the world is handmade in one shape or another. Like, <laughs> so seeing that always kind of cracks me up. We've been really curious about, uh, there's a snowboard and wakeboard factory in yeah. Dubai that Logue and I both just are in love with. Like, we think they have such cool finish. And they're just, it's, and who would have ever thought to put a ski factory there or a snowboard factory? But it's just, it, it's beautiful, you know? And again, why? But it's perfect. Like the product coming out of it is very good. So I, I don't think there's a reason. The weather doesn't dictate where your factory should be, you know, anymore. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of bump back, I, I guess, about um, thinking where the company is right now. Um, you know, you guys are you know, park and maybe park is too narrow, but, but cert certainly freestyle is such a huge component of Armada's um, roots. Um, and as you guys are, as we're looking at kind of now uh, a park segment uh, of skis that you guys are making and selling um, kind of all mountain freestyle skis, um, making some more directional big mountain skis how do you as a company, do you let go of certain segments? Does that just naturally evolve over time? Do you fight like hell to maintain old 
um, and by old I mean you know original maybe sure. markets like how is a brand um, and I mean yeah you guys are engineers but I kind of have a suspicion these questions aren't <laughs> they're too, in every too, meeting yeah they're in every meeting yeah mm-hmm. no and I mean that's so I was just nodding Andy go ahead and let me take this one because I was previously in the camp like there's no way we should be making some generic all mounts keys like why are we doing that like just totally polarized um, then it's sort of transitioned to freestyle all mountain whatever Armada makes kick ass fucking skis like so why wouldn't we share our knowledge that we've accrued and our quality of product with everybody I mean why why shouldn't we make a ski that my dad's gonna be stoked on like that's that if you get to the point where you're gonna polarize yourself to I just fit in one niche um, of ski type you're never gonna grow and you're never gonna reach people that you might not have otherwise reached so that didn't maybe I mean I think that that answer certainly makes sense it doesn't maybe talk about you know we think we think there's more market potential here than in a different segment that mattered to us our first mm-hmm. zero to five years old as a company mm-hmm. um, I don't know yeah, I think there's a the words around here that we say often are like protecting the core yeah and where we did start was in the park and pipe and I think now we realize that in order to be authentic to the park and pipe customer we have to try harder we didn't have to try as hard in the first few years. But now, because that is still an asset to us, and there's still a group that we cater to, and they're still our athletes, you know, that now when we focus on working with them and focus on their, their designs and their graphics and their soft goods, even their apparel, like we have to try extra hard to make sure we're still authentic there because we know we've diversified. So we have to give them even more of what they need. You know, instead of just, we're not making the same skis as we made 15 years ago, that's for sure. So now it's really making sure that if we're going to continue in that market share that we really nail what their needs are. Um, and having the right athletes has been huge for that one. But then really focusing that we don't lose them. You know, so we're going to diversify, but that means you have to try harder at what you were originally good at. Because other people are nipping at those heels for those same customers, for that original part that you used to own. Now other brands want that too. Other brands have walked away from it completely. Mm-hmm. And that's another, you know, the bigger brands have walked away from Park and Pipe. It's not in their catalog anymore. It's not even on their website. And we won't do that, you know, and we know we have to try harder now. So it's, it's a cool position. To, it's, a, it's difficult, but it's easy to justify because of our, because of our history. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What's the best question I haven't asked you? I think it's probably the question I get asked by everybody who doesn't know Armada. You know, and it's like, well, what makes Armada different? Why is it different? I think we've both been with big companies. We've both seen a lot of different things. And I think here, you probably saw it walk around the office, but we all can really work in any department. We can all really help. I mean, when, when, we, when you ask why, how do we ensure athletes are on the right product, you know, I see the athlete order. Logan calls the athletes and makes sure he's sending them the right skis. You know, we know exactly who's on what, when, you know, not that we're trying to tell them to ski on something else differently, but we're, you know, the guys in marketing know exactly what skis we're designing. You know, so we kind of try and keep it open, a little bit more of an open policy where we're a little bit more intermingled with each other than maybe other brands. We're not so siloed. 
Um, that can be frustrating because we get a lot of input then from everybody, even people that, of course, we would say they don't matter, but you know, you have to understand that that's a part of the process. So that's what makes us, I think that's a huge part of it. And that's inviting, like, like you said, we've been watching out this window the whole time for Tanner to walk by. It's because he adds something to everything we do. You know, he's not gone. He's not out. He's not missing. For, oh, he's missing today. He's not currently in the office, but Logan is back looking out the window to see if we can spot Tanner um, again. But I think that's what makes us different is that we're, we take feedback from within from anybody. When consumers post things online, like sometimes they're printed up and stuck to our desks. You know, when a new schooler's comment goes up or another blog comment goes on, like I'll see it printed up and on my desk by anybody. And, you know, we don't take it personally. Like we have to laugh at it and understand the circumstances. But it's, it's very open. We're always poking at each other. You know, the graphics could always be better. The skis could always be better. Um, I think that keeps us moving, moving at a good cadence. Well, it's very good to talk to both of you today, and, and it's it's actually been really cool to see this space. I mean, I do. I, this is a this is an impressive spot, and it's not a finished product, right? It looks like there's there's going to be more development around, but it it um I'm I'm envious. Uh, it looks like a good a good place, and yeah, I can attest very literally. Uh, Everybody's just kind of walking around here, uh, from from Hans to Tanner to some good company folk, and and uh, personally, I like the state that we're at. We're kind of business in front, party in the back. <laughs> and it works out really well. Uh, the mullet. I'd be fine with us keeping the mini ramp and the motorcycles and the sleds and ping pong table back there. Yeah, we'll see what happens someday. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate the time, and uh, I see you. you. See you soon. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Many thanks to Andy and Logan for the conversation, and to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, who is pretty convinced that he and his wife Mel are going to be having a baby boy soon because, quote, of my really high testosterone levels. That's a great point, J-Bob. Thanks also to High Brew Coffee for sponsoring this episode. Do yourself a favor and go to highbrewcoffee.com to check it out, then go to their store finder on the site to find out where you can grab yourself some highbrew. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there, and we will talk to you next week.